0: If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Exodus chapter 17. Let me sort of give you a, a notice as to what we're going to do this morning in terms of the, uh, our time in the Word before we read and before we pray. We're going to look at this episode in Israel's wilderness wandering of God providing water for his people from a rock. And that's in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Uh, But in part, because of the way that this episode has been building on the previous two tests that Israel faced, Uh, the Old Testament and even the New Testament makes much out of what we find in this little brief scene here. So we're going to read Exodus 17, 1 through 7. We'll spend some time there. And then we're going to look at the way that Psalm 95 uses Exodus 17. And then third, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 3 and see the way that Hebrews chapter 3 uses Exodus 17. Okay. So as we read... Might want to consider just in terms of a theme or a big idea for this passage, the realization or the truth that the Lord's patience is greater than our unbelief. By the way, if I let me pause right there. If if you have uh, if you have notes or an outline, or if you take notes, or if you just everything gets locked away in that machine inside your brain. You might want to put in parentheses after that statement, the Lord's patience is far greater than our unbelief. You might also want to put in parentheses, but his patience cannot be abused. It's One of the things that I've been struck with, particularly as we get to Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3. But having said that, consider then how we see an example of just how patient the Lord is for mistrusting, unbelieving, disobedient people. Exodus 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand your staff, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that as an act of your grace and kindness that you would enable us to see, by the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit, those areas or aspects of our lives in which we resemble Israel in this episode. Help us to recognize and to see that our sin, if left unchecked, will bring us to ruin. Help us also to see that for as great as what our sin is, that your grace abounds even more, that it exceeds the depths of our sin, and that we know that because you have given your Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and to die in our place so that we would not need to take the penalty that we so rightly deserve you are a good and gracious king and we worship you today amen so the lord's patience is far greater than our unbelief we're going to start in exodus 17 and we want to uh, just try to develop here if we can uh, one fundamental idea which is simply that unbelief is a sin that doesn't rest Unbelief is a sin that doesn't rest. One of the things that, that we ought to consider is that while any one of these passages that we've been in over the last couple weeks, so uh, in Exodus 15:22 through 27, where the people are traveling three days into the wilderness and they have no water, the water that they do find is bitter and the Lord makes it sweet and then later takes them to a restful oasis, that event can be read and studied and considered on its own. It's freestanding in one sense. The next event that we had last week, Exodus 16, with the whole issue of God providing food for his people in the form of manna, that's an episode that can stand on its own, that we can take in its own right. And Exodus 17, 1 through 7 is an episode that we can take on its own. But I think that one of the things that, that we ought to consider here, and I think there are clues connecting clues along the way, is that one of the ways to really grasp the significance of what's happening here at Messiah in Meribah is to consider the progression that has taken place from Exodus 15 to Exodus 17. In other words, we want to note or observe that what starts out as perhaps a sin that would be understandable or justifiable for people who fear that they may die of thirst now begins to give evidence of taking root in their hearts and minds and grabbing a hold of them in a very deadly and dangerous way here are some of the ways that this progression shows itself out all the way through in these three episodes the the bitter water the manna and then here water from the rock one of the key words that you have in each one of those episodes is the, the term grumbling. Right? The people grumble. They don't have confidence that the Lord is going to provide for their needs. They don't understand why they're in the wilderness. And so because of a lack of faith, at root, that unbelief manifests itself in their complaining and in their grumbling. They grumble against the Lord, they grumble against Moses. But here, we have a new term that's entered in where we find that the people are said not to simply be grumbling at Moses, but to be quarreling with him. Right, that's sort of a, I don't know, sounds a little, does it sound fancy? It at least sounds old and stiff, quarrel. No one uses the word quarrel anymore. All right, They're arguing with Moses. The root of the word here is the word that oftentimes shows up in the Old Testament when you have a legal case to be brought against someone and you're going to take them to court to try to show that they're in the wrong, that they've offended you, and that you're in the right, that you have rights that need to be satisfied or amended. All right, so they're in dispute, they're in argument. Moses has not, has not done right by them. That's the progression. It's one thing to observe that the predicament we find ourselves in is not what we anticipated, and to merely observe and complain about the reality. It's another thing to take another step and then to try to affix blame and charge Moses with guilt that they are in another place lacking water. So there's a progression by which the people go from grumbling at Moses to now arguing with him. But really the, the one that, that tips it off or the one that caps it all off is the fact that whereas before in the previous two episodes the people are grumbling and complaining at Moses, even at the Lord, here there is grumbling, there is arguing, but we're told twice that what the people are essentially doing in this arguing and grumbling is that they're testing the Lord this stands in stark contrast because in both of the previous two episodes the bitter water the provision of manna in chapter 16 one of the consistent traits or lessons that are being drawn from those episodes is that it is the Lord that's testing the people now the people are turning the tables and they're putting themselves in the place of God, testing Him. So what does it mean to test the Lord? Well, if you go back and if we think about well, what does it mean to say that the Lord was testing the people over the need for water and the need for food, We said that as you look at the context and you look at other passages in the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, that, that comment on the Lord's testing of His people, that what the Lord was doing, He was testing or He was proving the true condition or nature of their heart. That by squeezing them, putting pressure on them, what was inside was coming out. Everyone looks good when life is good. Life gets hard, life gets miserable, life gets bad, and we don't look so pretty anymore. So God is testing His people in order to reveal and refine the true nature and condition of their heart. If that's what's going on in testing, that God is proving the true nature of His people, then one of the things that's happening or one of the ways that we can conceive of this idea that the people are testing the Lord is that the people are now turning and saying that the Lord now needs to prove himself to them. We're not totally convinced. We're not satisfied that we can trust you. You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to show us something in order for us to know that we're going to be okay, that you're going to take care of us. It's essentially the people putting themselves in the driver's seat and saying, we're going to dictate to God how God is going to act in this situation. And he better do it to our liking, because if he doesn't, well, shame on him. You hear how arrogant that is? Give me a nod of the head. Do you hear how arrogant that is? for someone to say, God must act and answer according to my liking. And the the audacity of the people to test the Lord, on the heels of the Lord doing all of these miraculous things for them, turning bitter water sweet, leading them to an oasis where they can drink and be refreshed giving them bread out of heaven to feed them. And now they find themselves in need of water again. And rather than saying, well, God did it the first time and he did it the second time, surely he's going to do it the third time. They say what he did in the past makes no difference to us. What is he going to do now? He better show up and do something big or else. This is like a child waking up in the morning and having his mother or his father, we'll say mother because moms do all the good hard work, right? Having the mother dress the child, get the child ready for school, prepare and feed breakfast, prepare a lunch, send the lunch, The kid has not lifted a finger to do anything. He comes home at the end of the day, and his stomach begins to grumble. It's not even supper time yet. He's just hungry. And his response is, well, I wonder if mom's going to feed me or if she's just going to let me starve. What is she waiting on? Doesn't she know I'm hungry? Now, if a child ever used language like that, well, God forbid, right? But, aside from what the results may be, at the very least, do you hear how offensive that is to the faithfulness and the care and the tender provision of the parent who has done everything for that child and has provided for them everything that they could possibly need. And the moment that they begin to feel uncomfortable, it's like they never did anything. Are we so different? All it takes, all it takes is a moment where I have the first inkling of fear or a hunger pain, spiritual hunger pain, or when I am uncertain about what the future holds. And it's as if God has not been faithfully present and providing for me for decades. It's like I assume that God has to prove himself to me all over again. That's what's happening when we grumble, when we complain, when we argue, when we fight. We're basically saying God is not meeting our desires. He's not meeting our expectations. And until he does satisfy us, he's going to hear about it. Can we ratchet it up even just a little bit more? It's not just simply, that would be bad enough if the people were simply testing the Lord, saying that he must meet our needs according to our desires and our timeline. We don't know if we can trust him. He needs to prove himself to us as if God's character is in any doubt. That's bad. But when you get to the end of this paragraph, In verse 7, the place is given two names. You know something bad is going on when you have to name it twice. All right, the place is named Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, listen, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, let let me say very quickly here. Oftentimes in the Old Testament in particular, when you have the, the narrator enter in this way, he's not giving what appears to be a direct quote in formal dialogue, there's reason to believe or, or it is reasonable to, to conclude that the people may actually not have actually said those words verbatim, but that because God knows what is in the heart, that he is putting on their lips what they are really saying, right? In other words, we all know how we can say one thing that sounds really nice, but really is meant to be an insult. Southerners, bless your heart. Right? I'm not saying anything bad to them, oh, but yes, I am. Here it is. The people are arguing with Moses, and Moses says, Why are you arguing with me? Why, here's the root of it, Why are you testing the Lord, demanding that he prove himself to you as if he has something to prove? And at the end, the depth of this unbelief is formulated by the statement, Is the Lord in our midst or not? So if we can go back to the illustration of the child who has been fed already twice and now is wondering if his mom is going to feed him a third time. To say, is the Lord among us or not, is the child wondering if he's going to be fed as he walks into the kitchen and sees his mom doing work, preparing the meal and saying, well, I guess I'm an orphan. I'm just left to starve to death. The bitter unbelief that it takes to say something like that when you have been the recipient of so much goodness and grace, and this is what the people are doing to the Lord. Listen, this is the important thing to recognize. All of this started back in chapter 15 with complaining. Sin is dangerous because sin does not sleep and it does not rest. You think that you can entertain sin in your heart and in your mind and that you will control it? Don't kid yourself. Show me where in Scripture anyone has entertained sin and come out the better for it. Or do we see over and over and over again that sin left unchecked begins to take root in a heart and corrupt it and harden it and darken it so that it leads to misery and destruction. So there's a progression here with the people's sin. But along with the people's sin getting bigger and bolder, Did you see, did you hear God's patience? What does God do? He gives them something to drink. (laughs) Why? Why bother? These people don't appreciate what the Lord is doing for them, but here the Lord is again giving them what they need to live. Notice when the Lord goes to Moses, or when Moses speaks to the Lord, and the Lord gives him an answer as to what he's supposed to do. He says in verse 5, The Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you strut the Nile. What happened when Moses struck the Nile with his staff? The water turned to blood, it becomes undrinkable, it becomes foul. If Moses is going to take his staff in his hand, that was symbol, that was a symbol of God's power to judge unbelieving, rebellious Egypt, and he's about to put on some sort of a show in front of the people, I'm waiting for Moses to take the staff and to start cracking people over the head. How else are they going to get any sense knocked into their skulls? But the Lord tells Moses, you take your staff, which was a symbol of my powerful judgment on my enemy and you take it and it will become a symbol of my powerful patient provision for my people not because they deserve it but simply just because that's who I am turn with me to Psalm 95 Look at how this psalm makes use of this passage, the Exodus 17 passage that we're looking at. Let's actually start at verse 6. Psalm 95, verses 6 through 11. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed, that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways therefore I swore in my anger truly they will not enter into my rest this is sobering This is hundreds of years, this psalm, hundreds of years after the events of Exodus 17, and the Lord is still talking about it to say, you remember what happened back there? You better make sure that it doesn't happen to you. You hear the urgency in verse 7? Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your heart. Why the need to say today? The need to say today, don't harden your heart, is because... Any day that we entertain or try to tame sin could be the day that we are undone by sin. How much time has transpired from the point in which Israel goes out of Egypt to where we are in chapter 17, where they have gone from grumbling and doubting to all-out testing and, and defying the presence of the Lord. How much time? Probably somewhere between two and three months. If Israel's experience, God's redemptive work of His people, Israel, out of Egypt, is in some ways a paradigm for the redemptive work that He does for us, His new covenant people, if we are meant to take to heart the fact that we ought not to entertain sin because sin will devour us, in an overly simplistic way, we could say something like, do you recognize, believer, that you can enter into new life with Christ and in just a matter of months, sin can corrupt your heart? You don't know what path sin is going to take. You don't know how long you have to deal with that sin before that sin takes on a life of its own and begins to choke out your spiritual life. Three months in, to their experience of God's power and His miraculous salvation and they are already testing the Lord. And it's not that they're testing the Lord because they didn't have enough evidence. Right? Go back Psalm 95 down to verses 9 and 10. Your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. Paul says to the Galatians that Christ was publicly portrayed before your eyes as crucified. In other words, that with salvation... The opening of our eyes to see the realities of God's love for us, our eyes are open to see, as it were, with the eyes of faith, Christ crucified for me, for you, for us. So that any hardness of heart, any testing of the Lord is essentially doing what we are warned against in Psalm 95. It is seeing the evidence of God's love and faithfulness and provision for us most clearly in the work of Christ on the cross and saying, but I don't know if that's good enough now. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your heart. For 40 years, the Lord says, I put up with that generation and swore that they would never enter into my rest. I wonder how those words fall on your ears. I wonder if it's sobering as it ought to be. I wonder if, as a child of God, you hear God speaking to you through His Word, and you find yourself thinking, by God's grace, I need to kill sin before it kills me. I also wonder how this sounds if you're here as a wayward Christian, or if you're here as an unbeliever? What does this sound like to you? Do you hear Psalm 95? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did back then when they tested me, even though they had seen my works. They continually erred in their heart. They did not know me. I wonder if you're a wayward child or not a child at all. If you hear those words and if you say, it's no good, it's too late. That's not the way that you ought to hear Psalm 95. What you ought to hear if you're a wayward child or if you're no child at all, you ought to hear, not, it's no good, it's too late. You ought to hear, I can't believe how good God is that He has given me today. Today, if you hear His voice, it is not too late. Today, you are hearing the voice of the Lord, because His word is being spoken and announced to you. Don't harden your heart. His patience and His kindness are there to lead you to repentance. If you are here as a wayward child, or worse still, as someone who is not a child at all, because this is your today and you don't know how many todays the Lord may be kind enough to give you, you ought not to leave this place without talking with someone and getting things settled with the Lord today. You can find me at the door at the end of the service. You can find other pastors milling around down front. Or you can talk to any one of these people in the pew. And if they don't know how to answer your question, they'll go find someone who can. Let me say one other thing. I wonder how this falls on the ears of someone who weeps for the wayward and the rebel. For the parent who wonders if my child will ever show any sort of spiritual inclination or signs of spiritual life, or will they ever come back to the faith that they once professed? Or the husband or the wife that's praying for an unbelieving spouse? Or for a coworker who the Lord has worked on their heart in such a way that they are burdened for one of their fellow employees. What do you hear when you hear Psalm 95? Don't hear. Don't hear. It's no good. It's too late. You continue to pray, even with tears. And you pray that God in his kindness would make today the day. Because as long as he has given another day to that wayward child or that rebel at heart, God's kindness and patience has not been exhausted and there is still time. Don't give up. So unbelief is a sin that doesn't rest. We see that in the progression of sin taking a greater hold and expressing itself more pridefully and arrogantly with the Israelites in Exodus 17. Psalm 95, I should have made this point, point number two up front before talking about the passage. Forgive me. Persistent unbelief is the sign of a hard heart. Because we don't know when sin will run its full course. Today is the day for it to be dealt with. And then number three. Having said all of this, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And consider, if you haven't made this connection already, that the dangers of a hard heart, the danger of turning a deaf ear to God's voice, the danger of unbelief, is a real and present danger for God's people even today. Hebrews chapter three, start at verse 12. Before we read, notice that in the verses immediately preceding, verse 12, the author is quoting from Psalm 95, the verses that we just read. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He comes down then in Hebrews 3.12, and he draws this conclusion and application in light of what Psalm 95 says. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end while it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me every morning that you and i wake up and draw breath is another day that we are doing battle with sin and temptation whether we know it or not whether we acknowledge it or not It is a battle that is raging to try to capture your heart and your mind every day. Nothing in this world would push you to greater fellowship and confidence with Christ. Everything in this world pulls you in the opposite direction. Take care, brothers and sisters. You better watch out over your heart, too. How are you going to watch over your heart? We're told in this passage that the danger in verse 13, is that you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, your heart could be in the process of being corrupted and you not even know it. How are you going to be able to fight against influences? Thoughts, impulses that you are not even able to readily identify yourself. What does he say in verse 13? Beginning of verse 13. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. In other words, one of the ways that God shows his goodness and kindness to us is that he not only provides for our daily needs, praise the Lord that he does that, he not only gives us his word so that I at any time can go to his word and be fed and nourished and refined and purified by his spirit, but he has also given to you and to me this church so that we would not be lulled into a spiritual stupor. so that when I am going through my Christian life and I think that things are going fine, I have a brother or a sister who can come and say, Merritt, it is not well with your soul. I need that. I need it because my heart can deceive me. I need people, you need people, to come alongside of you and to say, yes, this is right. This is what the Lord has said. This is the way. Walk in it. People, be aware of the temptation and the tendency today to test God in a passive-aggressive manner, which is to say that God, in providing His church for His people for their good and their benefit, to help them guard and keep watch over one another, be very careful that you do not buy into the deceitfulness of sin that says... The gathering of God's people bodily on a regular basis is optional to the Christian life. It's not. If you think that you can thrive in your life with Christ that you are fine on your own, I would suggest to you that sin has already begun its work in your heart. You don't think you need God's provision. Or, God forbid, you're so arrogant as to assume that God will provide for me in another way that is more fitting and suited to my temperament and my personality. That is dangerous, dangerous ground to tread. But so long as God's people are gathered together regularly, yes, on Sunday morning, but not only on Sunday morning, as we interact with each other through the week, as we contact one another, as we send text messages and emails and letters and cards and phone calls and all of these things, What we are witnessing when the church works together as an assembly of God's people to encourage one another, we are seeing signs and evidence of the fact, one, that God is in our midst. Is the Lord among us or is he not? He is. And two, that the Lord is among us and that he is faithfully providing for what our hearts and minds and souls need through His Word, by His Spirit, and through the gathering, ministry, and edification of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God is so good and so patient to bring us back home. But his patience will not be mocked, it will not be abused, and it is not forever. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, forgive me and forgive us for looking lightly on the means by which you extend your grace to us, the way that you provide for our needs. You give us food in Christ. You give us food in your word, and we say that it's not sufficient or we want more. It's not to our liking. Forgive us for that, Father. You give us one another so that we can keep watch over our souls so that we can encourage and warn and strengthen one another. And we casually dismiss the work that you're doing here as if we can do it on our own, in our own way. Forgive us, Father. And Father, would you also forgive us for those times when in our times of weakness and doubt and fear or anger and frustration, when we, although we would never, ever say it verbatim, when our hearts nevertheless, because of our attitudes and because of our actions, are crying out, we do not know that the Lord is with us. Father, thank you that you have given us your Spirit who indwells us, who even when we are weak and frustrated and do not know how to call out to you, that your spirit calls out on our behalf, Abba, Father. Help us to walk as weak, humble, and trusting children, faithfully and obediently, until we reach home. Amen.
1: Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet as we... Respond to what we've heard today in song. And if you see a hymn book in front of you and you would like to grab that, page 410 in the hymn book. When peace like a Lord. doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.